0: If an outgoing head of state and or government ends their term with a dignified set-piece speech and a cheerful handshake with their successor, things in a given country can be broadly assumed to be going well. If the nation's leader scarpers for the airport while an enraged citizenry scales the walls of the presidential compound, the opposite analysis applies. Earlier this week, Sri Lanka's president, Kotabia Rajapaksa, joined the melancholy fraternity of leaders compelled to leg it into exile a step ahead of the pitchfork brandishing mob. Rajapaksa's dramatic decampment followed escalating discontent at Sri Lanka's recent descent into dysfunction. An energy crisis and an economic collapse have had dreadfully debilitating effects on the lives of Sri Lanka's people. The now very much former president, Gotabia Rajapaksa, is one member of a family which has for decades played musical chairs with Sri Lanka's highest political offices. One of Gotabaya's brothers, Mahinda Rajapaksa, resigned as prime minister in May in the face of growing protests. Another, Basil Rajapaksa, resigned as finance minister in April. Yet another, Shamal Rajapaksa, resigned as irrigation minister at around the same time. As we go to air, Sri Lanka's Prime Minister, Ranil Wakremasinghe, has been sworn in as acting president, but it is far from clear that anyone is paying much attention to him. But even if they eventually do, what options does he have? How did Sri Lanka get into this astonishing mess? And how does it get out? This is the Foreign Desk. Go, go, go! Go, go, go! Anti-government violence has spread across Sri Lanka following the resignation of the Prime Minister, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who quit following weeks of protests over spiralling prices.
1: We are a country with so much, so many resources, but the mismanagement and the sort of corruption that was there stole them all away from us.
2: Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo, is in turmoil after protesters stormed the compound of President Gotabaya Rajapaksa.
1: After months
2: of frustration, this feels like a release, crowds surging through the doors to get inside this presidential palace and get a peek of what life is like, Sri Lanka's political class.
3: We can't trust them. Since independence, since 48, we trust politicians and we lost everything that we have. So we are not going to trust them. We are stay here until they resign.
0: The prime minister's home was also mobbed and then lit on fire. Both the president and prime minister have now agreed to resign.
1: Today is the independence day for me, being born in this nation, not 1948. Because today we have fought for our freedom from the tyranny.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. First of all, for the latest from Sri Lanka, I'm joined by Tanya warnakula a writer based in Colombo. Tanya, let's start with the latest developments. We've been hearing about this curfew that has been imposed for 17 hours out of every 24. What reason has been given for that and how long is it likely to last?
2: The reasoning was we were in a state of emergency because there were more protests, a very vague reasoning and due process not actually followed in that. President Gotabia Rajapaksa has finally resigned and is now the former president of Sri Lanka. The Speaker of the House made that announcement today saying that as per Article 38 of the Constitution, he's received this letter of resignation from Gotabia Rajapaksa, which is what was required for the resignation to be official. So you'll remember that Gotabia promised to submit this letter last Wednesday. That didn't materialise. And many believe that he was delaying that because the former president had had such problems trying to get out of the country. I mean, he missed four commercial flights to Dubai because airport staff and passengers refused to let him board the plane. He eventually then had to take an air force jet to the Maldives, Uh, and even then caused outrage and demonstrations in the Maldivian citizens and members of parliament siding with the Sri Lankan citizens condemned the Maldivian government for granting immunity to the Rajapaksas. And during that time, you know, the United Arab Emirates seemed to be dragging their feet on issuing him a visa. US had already refused him a visa. And eventually he left to Singapore on a Saudi flight. It was thought that that delay in handing in his resignation was so that he could retain his status and privileges as a head of state. Because once he submits that letter, of course, all of those things go. So the acting president... Now former Prime Minister Rana Wood, promising her, who during the all-island protest last Saturday, where we saw the official residencies of the president and the prime minister stormed by the citizens, he'd stated that he would step down as per the wishes of the majority of the citizens. Now he's now, as many predicted, not stepped down, and he's been sworn in as president.
0: It is an extraordinary sequence of events, and I guess feels like some sort of climax to the crisis that has been building for some time. And we will be discussing the factors behind it later in the program. But what is Colombo like now? Are the protests ongoing? Do people feel like they've won any kind of victory? If you're able to go outside, what are you able to see?
2: It's very quiet in Colombo right now. Yesterday, as I said, Rick announced that this curfew was going to go on from midday to 5 a.m. this morning. And there was outrage from the citizens about that, who stated he had no right to do so as prime minister, because at that time, Gotabia Rajapaksa had not officially resigned. The Prime Minister's office then had announced that the president in absentia had made the Prime Minister acting president. So not though it was officially recorded, not announced in Parliament, no proper process done. So the people just roundly ignored the curfew and carried on with their business. Because you need to remember that whilst all these political chicanery is going on, the Sri Lankan citizens are still struggling to live and there are severe food shortages, fuel, medicine, and that's what this government has created so me personally i walked five kilometers yesterday to get my groceries and run errands despite curfew because there are no cabs, there are no three-wheelers around available, and the buses are dangerously overcrowded. And I passed many officers stationed on my route, none of whom stopped me or questioned why I was breaking the curfew. Protesters did go to the Prime Minister's office to demonstrate and were met with tear gas and water cannons. But then something very interesting happened, Andrew. The, the leaders of all the armed forces and the Inspector General of the Police held a joint press conference in which they all stated, that they would not be enforcing the curfew and that as the protests had been caused by the current political turmoil, they insisted that the onus was on the politicians of the country to resolve this situation as soon as possible. Now that press conference was applauded by the citizens and then of course we saw the opposition leaders who I have to say have been noticeably quiet through all this They then made an announcement insisting that the president and the prime minister both resign as soon as possible so that an interim government can be formed as per the people's wishes. Finally, The Speaker of the House announced that if the President did not hand in his letter of resignation, he was going to be deemed as having abandoned his post and his country and the due process of electing a new government would be enacted that way. So really, Gautabe's hand was forced somewhat to get that resignation in, and that's what's happened today.
0: Is there any element of the apparently now deposed order which could play any part in whatever comes next? I mean, do people assume that former President Rajapaksa's exit is a one-way trip that we won't be seeing him again? Do people think that Ranil Wakremasinghe, the former prime minister, now acting president, is actually part of any solution? Well,
2: there's two questions there. In terms of Ranil, he will definitely try in some way shape or form to be part of that solution and as you can see with the way that he did the about turn telling the country that he was going to step down and then not stepping down this is a man who has been sworn in as prime minister a staggering six times more than any other prime minister in the country and all of those times he has never actually taken that office as a democratically elected official voted in by the people of Sri Lanka so he will certainly try and in fact He's already taking actions to inveigle his way into the good books of the people. So one of the actions that he's speaking about is to remove the need to address the president of Sri Lanka as your excellency. Another is to demilitarize the north of the country, where, of course, the most fighting during the civil war happened. A third proposal is to create election and campaign finance reforms. So it's all good stuff. But it begs the question, why has this never been addressed before from a man who has held so much political power in the country for so long? So the cynicism and mistrust when it comes to Ronell is very much there. And the sentiment of the people is that they want him out. In terms of the Rajapakses, I mean, it's difficult to say. Former President and Prime Minister Mahinda, he was ousted from government in May by the protesters. He's still in the country. In fact, he has a travel ban imposed on him, as does brother Basil, who was the former finance minister. He's the guy that's known as the Crow, or Mr. 10%, for all the commissions that he would skim off of the national contracts and projects. We do know that there was always disagreement between Gotabia and Mahinda when they were in office together. The aspirations of Mahinda, when he came back as prime minister, he couldn't come back as president because he had done two terms of a presidency. He assumed that he'd be running the show, I think, and Gotabia would be the figurehead. And it's always been the wish of... Mahinda to have his son, Namal running as president. Narmal was the sports minister under the former government. He too is still in country. So who knows if the Rajapakses might regain political power that they've currently lost. I mean, we're seeing what Ferdinand Jr., Marcos, now elected as president 36 years after his father was removed by the people of Philippines for pretty much the same corruption and mismanagement that Sri Lanka is currently enduring. I mean, I hope that people's memories will not be that short and that the younger generation of citizens. I mean, they've been the real powerhouse, very instrumental in getting this corrupt, these corrupt politicians removed. So I hope they remember these events when the country inevitably does find more peaceful and prosperous times, and that they realise that it's their responsibility, it's the responsibility of every citizen to keep enforcing constitutional rights and to hold their political leaders accountable for proper governance in their home.
0: You did in there ask what is essentially the question I'm about to put back to you, which is the rhetorical question, who knows? I'm not going to hold you to any predictions you may shortly make. This is obviously a moment of just extraordinary chaos in the life of a nation. But from where we are right now, how do you see the next few weeks and months playing out?
2: Well, I think in the next few days, what we're going to see is people now turning their attention to the economic crisis and the shortages that are still continuing. We're going to see people once again remembering that whilst this country has successfully removed a very corrupt president and his dynasty from their politics. There is considerable work to do in establishing the kind of political stability that we need to receive in order to get the economic assistance that we're desperately requiring from institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. So that's what I think the immediate situation will be. Longer term, you know, what I I think needs to happen here is that gap between the disparate distribution of income in this country needs to be bridged because if you don't have that sort of bridging of that gap where we have incredibly incredibly rich people and then we have incredibly poor people and that extremely sort of polarized income what we need is a flourishing middle class to fill that void and stop that corruption people who understand that you know and are empowered by working to earn money to address the basic needs of food and shelter and then obviously to have disposable income to contribute to the higher needs that lead to a developing country you know and uh, improving the population this is what happened in india India and what you know once their middle class went beyond the 10 percent of the population you had that demographic who voted strategically to demand for cleanup of their judiciary and their police and their politics and this is what you know really should be happening in Sri Lanka longer term if you don't get that what's going to happen is you're going to get again a constituency that can be bought or bribed. Um, you know, And the, the Rajapaks are long known for buying people's votes with half a bottle of Arak and a rice packet. That's what was given. And that will happen whenever you don't have that distribution of wealth properly through the country.
0: And just a follow up to that, how much optimism are you able to summon for what might lie ahead?
2: I mean, I'm very optimistic. It's not going to be an easy road ahead but I think it's a revolutionary road ahead because this is unprecedented. We've never had this collective people power voice before. I'm not so surprised, but I think our Sri Lankan political elite are very surprised. You know, they're reeling from that collective voice of the people coming together. You need to understand that Sri Lankan society has always been somewhat feudal and it's probably a throwback from, you know, the colonial times and being indentured first to the Portuguese, then to the Dutch, and then lastly, the British, up until as recently as 1948. So that class status and privilege has always had the loudest voice in this country. And the biggest holders of societal power here are the religious leaders and the political ones. So up until now, they've effectively been very untouchable. The notion of personal power or citizen power, the ability to exercise a citizen's rights in this country is something that has never really come into the public consciousness. And now, of course, that is changing. And it's wonderful to see people very unafraid to be angry, to vocally speak out against the corruption and the injustice that has plagued this country for so long. So that has come as quite a shock to the politicians of this country. And I feel that it will certainly make them think twice because... They're now being forced to be transparent in their dealings. And if there is one blessing in disguise from this crisis, it is that people are now very aware of their constitutional rights and they will be holding their political leaders accountable for good governance. And that is why I think everyone in the political arena in Sri Lanka, the opposition leaders, are being so uncharacteristically quiet right now.
0: Tanya, thank you. That was the writer Tanya Warnakulasuriya speaking to us from Colombo. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. <laughs> if Sri Lanka's manifold difficulties can be boiled down to a single, simple, indeed simplistic statement, it is this. Sri Lanka doesn't have any money. Sooner rather than later, it will need some from somewhere. Well, joining me now from Washington, D.C., is Shanta Devarajan, Professor of the Practice of International Development at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. Shanta formerly served as a Senior Director for Development Economics at the World Bank. Shanta, let's start with a fairly basic mechanical question. When a country finds itself in soup so deep that it needs funds from the World Bank, how does that actually work? Who calls whom and what do they ask for?
3: Well, in any case, under any circumstance, it's the country that has to initiate the loan because it's the country that's borrowing. Now, in the Sri Lankan case, it's particularly complicated at the moment because Sri Lanka is not credit worthy so that the World Bank is constrained, even if there is a request, it's constrained from responding to that request. At this point, because Sri Lanka has declared a debt standstill on its debt obligations, and it's negotiating a debt restructuring with the creditors. So during that period, it's very difficult for the World Bank to come up with a a fresh loan. So what the World Bank has been doing, because this is an emergency, is reprofiling existing loans. So the World Bank has given, I don't know, about a billion dollars worth of loans over the past year that haven't been dispersed yet. So they can actually take money that was supposed to go for a road project and use it to provide cash transfers to poor people during this emergency situation. So they've done that now for up to a few hundred million dollars, but that's within the existing envelope. The only way the World Bank will be able to give new money to Sri Lanka will be after an IMF program has been approved by the IMF board. Because the IMF program will say that the level of fiscal adjustment that Sri Lanka has been able to take, as well as the willingness of the creditors to take a cut in their debt obligations, that combination provides the basis for which Sri Lanka will re-emerge as creditworthy. And so then the World Bank can provide new loans.
0: Are there rigid fixed criteria by which the World Bank decides yes or no, or is it on a case-by-case basis? Oh, yeah, it's very much on a
3: case-by-case basis. But one of the criteria is the creditworthiness. You know, it's whether the country can actually pay back the loan. But the other, and that's probably the most important criterion, is whether this is actually going to benefit the poor. So the World Bank is not a commercial bank. It's a development bank. It's committed to the elimination of global poverty. And so all loans are scrutinized and evaluated in terms of how they will help the poor in the country.
0: And do similar criteria attend decisions about bailouts or similar rescues from the IMF, of which Sri Lanka has had many, 16 or 17, I think, which would seem to suggest that whatever the criteria are, they're possibly not stringent enough. What the IMF is mainly doing is trying to restore stability
3: to the macroeconomics of the country. So, the country is, as Sri Lanka is at the moment, having a huge fiscal deficit. It's about 11% of GDP. And so, what the IMF does is to say how can we get Sri Lanka back on a track where the fiscal deficit is reduced and the current account deficit is also reduced so that the country will be in a position to pay back? the new debt. So that's the role that the IMF plays. I resist the term bailout because I think it's more like a certification of the adjustment program so that the country can actually reemerge in capital markets. Now, this is the first time that the IMF has actually played this role in Sri Lanka. The previous 17 programs have been simply adjustment programs. And I think it's fair to say that the reason why there've been 17 of these Is that while the country was able to agree on an adjustment program with the IMF each of those times at the moment, they didn't actually go ahead and implement all of the measures in the program. See, a a program is an agreement over a three-year period, so they would agree, there would be some money in the first tranche coming in as a result of the program, But then when there's a review of the progress in the second year or the third year, you find that the program was off track. And that's why they had to come back the next time. What that tells me is that Sri Lanka has a lot of what you might call chronic problems with economic policy that they weren't really fixing in the short-term adjustment programs. For instance, the most important one in my mind is the dominance of the finance ministry over the central bank. Sri Lanka was in a situation where there was no independent central bank. So when the finance ministry had a fiscal deficit to finance, they would demand that the central bank lend them the money. And we know what happens when you do that. You end up with high inflation. But there was no way that the central bank could resist the pressure from the finance ministry to finance that fiscal deficit.
0: What allowances or adjustments do bodies like the World Bank and the IMF make for, I guess, domestic political considerations, whether they are the protests against the government, which are now occurring in Sri Lanka, or the fact that Sri Lanka's government is is reaching out for assistance to Russia, which is presently sanctioned by a huge amount of the rest of the world?
3: The IMF and the World Bank, for that matter, are mainly concerned about whether the policy framework that has been agreed upon will be sustained. They don't have a view as to who should be the president or who should be the prime minister. It's really whether the program that we've negotiated will actually be implemented. Now, in the particular case of Sri Lanka, as you said, there's real anger over the harsh economic conditions that have been going on. And you would think that that creates a sort of uncertainty about the sustainability of the economic policy, whether the government be able to sustain it if the government falls. But I think I have two reasons to be optimistic. I actually think that the protests are actually supportive of the IMF program because the people protesting there on the streets, they understand the link between the failed economic policies of the Rajapaksa administration and their current dire economic circumstances. They make that link perfectly clearly. That's very different than other cases where many governments have managed to blame it on COVID or blame it on the Ukraine war. These people say, no, it's your fault. You did the wrong thing, including, by the way, delaying going to the IMF by two years. So what the IMF program, or what our fiscal adjustment program is, is designed to reverse those policies. In addition, and this is what makes me optimistic, is that we've had discussions with the leaders of the opposition. And what was remarkable was that even in January, we had a seminar with these leaders of the opposition parties, and they, at the end of the seminar, signed a joint declaration calling for the government to go for a debt restructuring and approach the IMF. Now, what's remarkable about this is that these opposition parties range from the extreme left to the extreme right. They don't agree on too many other things, but they did actually agree on this. So that gives me some assurance that even if the government falls, whoever is the new leader that emerges from the new government is likely to support the IMF program.
0: Just as a final thought, then, if you were the person that whoever was running Sri Lanka did approach for advice about what they should actually do next, what would you tell them? They already have approached me. (laughs) (laughs)
3: I'll tell you what I told them. (laughs) So I would say we need to increase taxes. The reason we got into this trouble in the first place was that when they came into power, the Rajapaksa administration cut taxes. They cut the value added tax from 15% to 8%. We need to restore that because Sri Lanka, the revenue to GDP ratio is 8.3%, which is one of the lowest in the world. So we need to reverse that. We also need to cut some of the subsidies. So you look at a whole range of subsidies on fuel and fertilizer and a whole bunch of other things that don't necessarily benefit the poor. Fuel subsidies are basically a transfer to the rich who drive gas-guzzling cars and run air conditioners and so on. We need to convert these subsidies into targeted cash transfers, So that you can make sure that the poor continue to get more money while the rich are paying their fair share. Then we need to go beyond that to the large range of state-owned enterprises. Sri Lanka has a large number of state-owned enterprises that are all losing money. Sri Lankan Airlines, the airline itself, by the way, is one of the biggest losers. Its accumulated losses is about 0.8% of GDP. So they have to get rid of Sri Lankan Airlines one way or the other. And there there are a few others. But these are the major big-ticket items that need to be done urgently in order to restore some credibility to the government's fiscal stance.
0: Shanta, thank you for joining us. That was Professor Shanta Devarajan of Georgetown University. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. A character in Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises is asked how he went bankrupt and replies, gradually... Then suddenly, though chaos and collapse on the scale Sri Lanka is experiencing may seem akin to some sudden natural disaster, it is the culmination of a long sequence of missteps. Well, earlier I spoke to Charu Lata-Hogg, an Associate Fellow at the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House here in London, and to Bhavani Fonseca, a prominent human rights lawyer and activist in Sri Lanka. I began by asking Charu to explain how the current crisis came about.
1: Well, I think we need a seasoned economist to really unpack what has gone wrong. But as a layperson and as, as an observer of Sri Lanka for many years, I would say that The roots of this go back to the way in which the government built the foundations of the economy. The foundations of the economy were built on heavy borrowing, a progressively welfare state which spent much more than it generated in terms of its income, and then very high interest borrowing from neighbours, from China, from other countries, in order to sustain the economy. Some would say that it was a time bomb that was ticking all this while. And over the recent years, I suppose, the finger can be pointed more starkly towards the Rajapaksa administration. And let's not forget, you know, since 2005, the Rajapaksas have dominated the political landscape of the country and in this they relied in sort of rebuilding the country after the end of the conflict in 2009 they began to borrow massively and began to make huge investments in what were called infrastructure projects but what they really needed for sri lanka is a different question altogether in addition to that, massive and vast scale corruption and allegations have abounded about these practices by the Rajapaksa government. So in a nutshell, I suppose poor economic planning and heavy and very centralised and problematic political administration with not enough forward thinking about the economy and hurt, I suppose, doubly by the pandemic, which affected tourism and the foreign remittances. And in addition, I suppose, more recently with the Ukraine crisis
0: to some degree. Bhavani, now that Charu has mentioned the Rajapaksas, we should talk a bit about this extraordinary family firm which has dominated Sri Lankan politics for what must now feel like forever, especially if you're in Sri Lanka. To what extent is it as simple as the Rajapaksas operating Sri Lanka for their own benefit rather than for the benefit of other Sri Lankans?
4: So the Rajapaksa family, or the house of Rajapaksas, have been in politics for decades and it's really kind of centered around Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was the president and the prime minister who resigned on the 9th of May. At one point, all four brothers, that's Gotabia. Mahinda, Basil, and Shamal Rajpaksa were in cabinet as well as several other members of the Rajpaksa family. And so they're deeply entrenched, extremely powerful, and also I would say popular. I mean, their popularity has had a hit in the last few months because of the economic crisis. But we cannot ignore the fact that they still have a constituency that supports them. So they're very much ingrained in Sri Lankan politics and they are also very much identified, especially the president, as the key architect of defeating terrorism in 2009. And they have been going on that basis for so many years now that they are the ones who managed to defeat terrorism in Sri Lanka. And we need to also remember when Gotabe Rajpaksa came to the fore as a candidate in 2019, he came in the wake of the devastating Easter Sunday attacks and said he's going to be the strong ruler who was going to bring in stability, security, and economic prosperity. Two and a half years later, it's been a spectacular disaster under his rule. And there are now questions in terms of really Was this experiment something that was really much more the rhetoric than actual substance?
0: Charu, as we've been discussing, some of what has befallen Sri Lanka can't really be blamed on President Rajapaksa. so the pandemic wasn't his fault, which did largely take down Sri Lanka's extremely important tourism industry, but he has made some very curious decisions since, notably this ban on chemical fertilisers, this more recent attempt to get a credit line from Russia in order to buy more oil. Underpinning all these decisions he's made, is there any any coherent political ideology or philosophy that you would characterize him as holding or is he just furiously trying to wing it from one crisis to the next
1: I think your latter analysis would perhaps hold true, but that sort of opportunism and that just making things work somehow has been a characteristic of this government. If you look at their foreign policy initiatives and the relationships that they've been trying to build as well, it's sort of going with whoever serves their particular interest and not really dictated by any kind of philosophical basis or in a continuation of how Sri Lanka identifies. Identified itself as a non aligned country in the previous year. So there has been complete political opportunism, which has driven most of the Rajapaksa's responses. And in this particular case, I think the situation is so dire that they have to try any which way to salvage the country. Now, the question of clinging on to power is the other option for the Rajapaksas, which is to leave the position of power, would be, I think, suicidal for them at this point. So I think it is driven by a complete desperation to keep other forms of accountability at bay, accountability for massive corruption, accountability for war crimes, accountability for the decimation and attack on freedom of media, on every single civil and political right you can imagine. So that is really the attempt that how do they stay on to avoid this assault or onslaught of accountability that would come at their door? And to this, I would say, There is a role that interested governments are playing in keeping them in post. So there is something that we need to unpack also about the vested interests that their immediate neighbors and indeed their neighbors a little bit further afield have in retaining the Rajapaksas in their current position.
0: I do now want to get some closing thoughts from both of you. And I'll start with you, Charu. Sri Lanka obviously has endured a great many tests of its resilience over recent years, civil war, terrorism, natural disaster. Is there any concern in the context of this particular crisis, do you think, that the centre might not hold and that things might actually fall apart properly?
1: I don't think it would be in the interests of any of its neighbors to see such a collapse of Sri Lanka. So I think in the interest of geopolitics alone, if not in the interest on a humanitarian initiative, we would see some kind of emergency measures come in. The question is, why haven't they come in so far? So there's clearly a bartering of interest negotiation that is afoot, both between China and Sri Lanka. India and Sri Lanka and certainly to a certain degree from afar, from the EU and other countries who have an interest in Sri Lanka to extract what they see as a democratic dividend or a vested political dividend in lieu of that injection of economic support. So your question about are we going to see a complete collapse, I would bet against not. However, it doesn't take away the fact that there is a severe humanitarian crisis, that people are suffering, that there is no immediate hope in sight, and there is a restive military. if you like, the seeds of a very volatile political situation are very alive at the moment. But will we see a collapse? I don't think so.
0: Bhavani, on that semi-hopeful note, I will come back to you finally. We started out talking about the effect that this crisis was having on day-to-day life in Colombo or in Sri Lanka generally, and I'd like to personalise that even further. If you could maybe talk us through what you expect the next few days and weeks might be like for you in terms of just trying to go about your day-to-day life. How difficult do you anticipate it being?
4: Well, it's already very different, Andrew, and I think, I mean, we are getting ready. I mean, it's basically an unofficial lockdown in Sri Lanka. We are unable to travel, at least by vehicle, because there's no fuel. Maybe the positive side is that many are taking to cycling or walking, and this is in quite a a hot and humid environment. So it's an unofficial lockdown. Schools have closed. Officers are nearly shut down. The public transport is coming to a standstill. So things in that respect, it's similar to the COVID period, but it's the humanitarian crisis that I worry and the fact that many are likely to starve. I mean, there are reports now emerging that in the next couple of weeks, we are likely to see significant numbers uh, facing starvation debt is going to increase, suicides could increase. So we are having that kind of impact and uh, it's likely to get worse. But one also needs to factor in the political stability in Sri Lanka, it's not just the humanitarian crisis, but the political stability is very tenuous at the moment. But all that said, one of the things that I think keeps Sri Lankans going is these peaceful protests that have been there for several months. It's unprecedented the way people have come out. Many ignoring intimidation, harassment, court orders, attempts to arrest them. We've had two states of emergency in the last few months and regardless, people have come to the streets. So the mobilization of citizens is very much there and the resilience shown by many people is quite remarkable. So while things are dire and uncertain and that there is you know, multiple crises on the ground, the fact that people are standing up and largely peacefully, I mean, we've seen some incidents of violence, but largely peacefully calling for a system change is something we cannot ignore. So I also want to end this in a hopeful note saying that hopefully these uh, months long protests lead to system change but also reckoning of what Sri Lanka has gone through in the past and learning mistakes from that past and fixing those mistakes. So addressing some of the root causes and ensuring that Sri Lanka's democracy holds together is extremely important at this moment.
0: That was Bhavani Fonseca and Charu Lata Latahog. This is The Foreign Desk. And that's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.